Well, good morning. It's great to be here this morning, and uh, I really do appreciate the opportunity that Matt and Brad and others have arranged for us to come and share from God's Word. Uh, I'm looking forward to, and I've been really appreciating the opportunity to build relationship uh, with Matt and Brad and others uh, here at Anchor. Uh, I have been inspired by the way that you as a church are engaging with your community, and so I look forward to seeing that grow over the coming years. But this morning we're dealing with the problem of waiting, the problem of waiting. You've been working on a series here, and, uh, and I've been listening actually online to the previous talks in the series, so if you haven't, if you've missed a week, you haven't seen one of the talks, let me encourage you to go back to the website, uh, download one of the talks, uh, some of the talks and listen to them, they've been great. Uh, but we're dealing with this, uh, the life of Abraham and his journey between, faith, between the promise and the realisation. And it's been a journey that uh, involves waiting. And so last week, Brad uh, took us through the passage in Genesis chapter 15, where Abraham complains to God that he doesn't have a child, and then he uh, suggests that his uh, servant, uh, Eliezer, will become the, the way that God realises his promise of having an heir. And God says, no, that that's not the way it's going to be. And Abraham responds in faith, and it's quite exciting uh, because Abraham has this, you know, has this uh, example of faith which is then upheld throughout the rest of the story of the Bible as the example that we should follow. Wonderfully, today, I get the uh, Genesis 16, which is the downside of that story. Um, and it's the story where Sarai complains that she doesn't have a son to be an heir. And she proposes that her servant becomes the one who produces the heir. Can you see the parallels between Genesis 15 and Genesis 16? Uh, and so let me read for you Genesis chapter 16, verses 1 to 6. It says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abraham, or Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that, uh, and your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. So we're dealing this morning with the problem of waiting. And let me say that I think waiting, it's the more important that something is that you're waiting for, the harder it is to wait for it. The more important something is that you're waiting for, the harder it is to wait for it. Uh, when I'm catching a bus into the city and I'm running early, which almost never happens, and the thing that I'm heading into the city for isn't really that important, and if I'm standing at the bus stop and the bus is a few minutes late, it's not that big of a deal, right? But if the way... Uh, my life normally works is that I'm running late and what, I, what I'm heading into the city for feels like it's really important, then my anxiety, if I'm standing at the bus stop and the bus uh, either comes and it's chock-a-block full, has anyone ever had that experience? Or, um, 
or the bus is running a few minutes late and I'm just like watching my watch and the, like the, heart, the waiting is really hard. Um, because the, the more important something is, the harder it is to wait for it. Last year, my daughter, who's uh, 11, uh, heard that, that Liz wanted, to, wanted a particular thing for a, for a birthday present. And so Catrice had her first experience of online shopping. She, she went online with some help and bought this present. Uh, and it was a few weeks before Liz's birthday. And so we allowed the sort of normal delivery time to happen. Uh, but after about a week and a half, Catrice came to me and said, Dad, did that package arrive? Have you seen that package? I'm like, sorry, Catrice, the package hasn't arrived yet. I haven't seen it. Uh, a few days later, Dad, did that package arrive? Do you know if that package... Sorry, Catrice, the package didn't arrive. A few days before Liz's birthday, Dad, has that package arrived yet? I'm like, what package? Oh, that's right, that package. Uh, no, the package hasn't arrived yet. I'm sorry, Catrice. The day before Liz's birthday, Catrice came to me. Dad, did that package arrive? And it didn't arrive. It didn't arrive until a few days after Liz's birthday, by which point Catrice, in her sweetness, was totally devastated that she'd missed Liz's birthday. Because for Catrice, that was really important, that she buy a, a nice present for Liz. And the more important something is, the harder it is to wait. Liz and I, when we got married, we were a little bit older, and so we started trying to have children fairly early on. Um, but it just didn't happen. You know, and after a little while, not too long, it's like, well, let's go and get some expert advice on all this stuff, which I thought it was fairly straightforward. Um, but it still didn't happen, you know, month after month. I think Brad talked about this last week. It's like the disappointment of maybe this month, but not this month. Maybe this next month and not this month. And you start asking questions. Doesn't God think that we'd be good parents? You know, we've, we've been in ministry. We've been working with young people. Surely, surely, God, this is something that would be good. Um, and for us, the, uh, the route towards children ended up going through international adoption, which at the time was uh, an incredible blessing. But let me tell you that it's become even more difficult, if not impossible, now. Uh, so I have a lot of sympathy for parents and couples who are struggling with uh, the desire to have children, who can't have children and it gives me a lot of sympathy for the situation that Sarai finishes, finds herself in here because for her, this was really important. The opportunity to have a son to provide an heir for the family was really important. And I think there's four reasons why it was important for her. The first one, you could just say it was the natural. It's like there's, most of us, uh, I think we all have some form of biological urge to reproduce. For some of us, it's stronger than others. Um, but uh, I think it's a natural thing. The second reason is because of the relational context that she's in. Uh, when Liz and I were looking to adopt from overseas, they asked the question, why do you want to adopt a child from overseas? And apparently the answer of, we want to lift a child out of poverty, isn't a really good reason to adopt child, children from overseas. They, they think there's much more effective ways of supporting children who are in underprivileged situations than just adopting one of them, you know? Um, and so the answer that came to me, and I think was inspired by my understanding of who God is, uh, is that, that in the relationship that Liz and I have, we love each other. And the nature of love, unlike our teenage romance, where we just sort of spend all our days staring into each other's eyes, the nat true nature of love is one that overflows and wants to be shared. And, and God himself, we know, you know, 
God the Father loves God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, and God the Son loves the Father and loves the Spirit, and God the Spirit loves the Father and loves the Son. And so they were, they were so in love with each other that it spilled over and actually motivated them to create us in order to enter into a relationship with because they wanted to share the love and the relationship they have with each other with other beings who are created in their image. And I think for Sarah, she, uh, Sarai, as, she, um, as she's in this relationship with Abraham, I think it's a natural, healthy thing for that relationship, love, to spill over and want to share with children. Of course, there's a third factor for, for Sarai, which is the cultural factor, which, that, which is that her identity and her sense of self-worth is caught up in her ability to produce an heir. And before we you know, get all poo-poo on this uh, ancient patriarchal society where a woman's worth is only determined by her ability to produce an heir, just reflect for a little bit, for a moment, on whether your identity in our culture is determined by your ability to produce. Are we only valued because of how productive we are? And then fourthly, I think for Sarah, the reason why it was important for her is because it was an expression of her understanding of how God had created her, her, her role in what God was doing in the world, and her relationship with him. So there's a spiritual factor here that heightens the importance even higher for her. And so I have this sense where for Sarah, this is really important. And that made the waiting really hard. So I think there's a problem in waiting. Now let me just say, I think, I, I suspect that some of you out there are like me just a few years ago where I wasn't really that worried about the fulfillment of God's promises. I was like, I don't really feel like I'm waiting for God to do something. I'm actually quite happy with my life the way it is. My, I'm fairly content. Um, you know, things are going pretty well for me. I'm happily married. I have a nice place to live. There's things I want to see happen in my life. Um, you know, back as a teenager, I was like, man, I can't wait to get married and have sex. That would be really good, wouldn't it? Jesus, don't come back before I get to have sex, right? <laughs> you know, the, kind of selfish, right? Um, but as we were going through the adoption process, one of the things that I learned, because we were dealing with the government department, uh, it was called DOCS back then, uh, who also dealt with child abuse cases, and one of the news headlines that struck me was just how many thousands and thousands of reports are made every year of children who are in abusive situations. And I just put myself for a moment in the situation of one of those children, and I thought, you know, if you're in an abusive situation like that, you're crying out for God to do something. You're crying out for justice, you know. And as valuable as uh, all of the, the support services are, that the particularly uh, Christians devote themselves to, but other, other agencies as well, when I think about uh, the end of child abuse, I'm like, that's going to continue until Jesus comes back. When I think about the suffering of people in places like South Sudan at the moment, uh, you know, just, it wasn't that many years ago that we last had conflict that led to, to famine and suddenly there's another crisis in the south, in the south of Sudan and refugees flying, uh, moving around the place. And I'm just like, they're crying out for justice. They, they don't want life to be the way it is right now. And the only way ultimately that that will end is when Jesus comes back. And so let me encourage you, if you don't feel a sense of urgency 
for Jesus to come back, it's probably because you're in such a privileged position that maybe you're at risk of uh, when Jesus says, you know, the first will be last and the last will be first, maybe you don't want God's justice and judgment to come because of which side of the ledger you'll end up being on. That's a bit harsh. Let me just... But for me, I'm like, I look at students on campus and I see them wandering around and to use the words of God in the prophet uh, Jonah, it's like they don't know their right from their left. How is that going to end? You know, the, God's judgment is going to come. Jesus is going to return, he says, when uh, every person in the world, you know, the gospel has been preached to all nations. And he says in, uh, in Peter, Peter's wrote, uh, he says, God's not slow in accomplishing his promises, but he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. I think, who's God patient with? He's not patient with them out there. He's patient with us, he says in Peter, because he doesn't want people out there to perish. And so if I'm wanting to see Jesus come back, my commitment is to engage people, to give them a chance to hear about Jesus and respond. And as the Great Commission is fulfilled, as the gospel goes forth to all nations, then Jesus is able to come back and end suffering and we will have a place where every tear is wiped away. And there will be peace and prosperity and people will be able to serve and live in a way that produces satisfaction. And Sarai here, she's waiting. She's waiting for the, way that, for the thing that God has promised her, that this is the way I'm going to use you and she finds the waiting impossible. And so we find in verse 2 that she takes matters into her own hands. It says in verse 2, uh, Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from having children. Go into my servant that I, I may ch- uh, obtain children by her. Now, in our modern world, that can sound a bit icky, right? Um, but let me tell you that surrogacy was a fairly common practice back in, ancient, in the ancient world. Surrogacy is actually a hot topic right now. Uh, if you've been paying attention to the news, the closure of uh, commercial surrogacy programs in Thailand and in Cambodia has created all sorts of pressure for families, uh, couples here in Australia who are looking for sur- uh, surrogacy options. And of course, in Australia, the only form of surrogacy that's allowed is what's called altruistic surrogacy. Um, But in the ancient Near East, in this time and in this culture, surrogacy was recognised and it was fairly common. In fact, it was so common that uh, the ancient code, Hammurabi's code, had several laws related to the practice of surrogacy, laws that were supposed to protect the wife, uh, laws that were supposed to protect the slave, uh, laws that were supposed to protect the husband. There's about five laws that we have recorded Uh, which is actually fairly high proportion for a subject like surrogacy in the Hammurabi Code. So let me say, it's a a fairly major topic, or a significant topic, and the reason that it produces so many laws, of course, is because the only reason you create laws is because there's problems, right? Uh, This surrogacy is a practice that is fraught with danger. And now I would say that this this chapter in Genesis 16 doesn't speak for or against surrogacy in general, Uh, but it definitely addresses the issue in relation to Sarai. And we could see that this practice from Sarai is not a step of faith. Her proposal does not come as a step of faith. And there's two reasons why we can say that. There are two clues in the text. Uh, The first is in verse 2, where Sarai says explicitly, 
that God has prevented me from having children. He's closed my womb. He's like, well, if he's preventing me I, and I really want it, then I'm just going to go for it by another route. I'm going to try and manipulate circumstances to get the very thing that God's promised me, even though he seems to have stopped me getting there. But the other clue that this is not a step of faith is a little bit more subtle. And it comes by comparing Genesis 16, verse 3, with the uh, account that the, Genesis, the same writer in Genesis re, uh, writes back in Genesis chapter 3. And we see in verse 3 that, uh, at the end of verse 2, that Abraham listened to Sarai, which parallels in Genesis chapter 3, where Adam listened to Eve. The second thing, that's, uh, the second thing that happens in Genesis 16 is that Sarai took Hagar, just as Eve took the fruit. And then Sarai gave Hagar to Abram, just as Eve gave the fruit to Adam. We know that in Genesis uh, chapter 3, that God had given a promise to uh, Eve, that uh, Adam and Eve, that they had been provided for, that he had expressed his provision for them and his goodness for them, but through the, the temptation, they were tempted to doubt God's word. They were doubt, tempted to doubt God's promise. They were tempted to doubt God's goodness. And we see the parallel happening here in Genesis 16. I think the writer is, uh, is highlighting for us the fact that Sarai's actions were also doubting God's promise and doubting God's goodness. I think Sarai got to the point where she was so focused on what God had promised her, the blessing that she was looking for, that she forgot or she, she gave up on her desire for God himself. She moved away from pursuing God and started pursuing the blessing. The question is, do we do that? Do we ever get so focused on what we want God to give us that we forget to pursue or we put that in place of pursuing him ourselves. Uh, and that can even happen in, in our spiritual lives. There's, there's a writing uh, from medieval times. Uh, St. John of the Cross wrote a book called The Dark Night of the Soul, which he was a Catholic counter-reformation guy, and I wouldn't affirm any, you know, very much of what he wrote, but this was a great concept. He said, when you first uh, start following Jesus, you get this uh, sense of like, wow, my sins are forgiven, I get this emotional lift, um, I'm reading the Bible, everything's new, there's all these great new ideas, my mind is expanding, I'm worship, singing worship songs to God and everything feels really good, you know, I'm praying and God answers my prayers. And he says, but after you journey with God a while, um, he lets you go through this dark, what he calls the dark night of the soul, where suddenly uh, that, those feelings dissipate. You know, you, you're reading the Bible and it's like, oh, I've read this before, what, you know, I'm looking for some new spark, or I'm praying and I feel like I'm, my prayers are bouncing off the ceiling, or I'm turning up to worship and it's like, man, these, these people around me are really annoying, you know, it's like, this isn't really happening for me. Um, and he says, uh, you get to a point, God takes you to a point where you just have to decide, am I doing this? Am I following Jesus because he makes me feel good? Or am I following Jesus because of who he is and whether he's worth it? Am I following Jesus because he makes me feel good or am I following Jesus because of who he is and, whether he's and because he's worth it? And I think Sarai gets to the point where she's just, like, she's just following Jesus, following God at this point, 
because of what he's promised. And because he's blocked her promise, she's turned away from him. And so Abram goes into, Sarai, uh, goes into Hagar as, as Sarai gives her up. And amazingly, at 85 years of age, he gets Hagar pregnant. Mick Jagger, eat your heart out. If you don't know, Mick Jagger just had his eighth child at the age of 72. Uh, Devereaux, I think his name was, last year, late last year. Um, but Abram, man, he's still got it, right? You can just imagine him cheering as he's running around the, ch- the tent going, yeah, 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 it's all, it's all happening. <laughs> but, the amaz- but the thing that happens is as Hagar gets pregnant, the dynamic in the whole family changes. You know, Hagar gets pregnant and she gets proud. She looks with contempt on Sarai. Sarai, of course, gets upset. She's threatened by this, by this pregnancy. And, and so she complains to Abram. And Abram, of course, he backs out of the deal. He's like, washes my hands. She's your servant. Do with her as you like, you know. And so then Sarai tries to enforce her position as the primary person. And she gets abusive. And Hagar flees. And it's just a mess. It's just a mess. That's, that's, that's what happens when we try to manipulate circumstances to achieve God's blessing in our own strength. And then, incredibly, God shows up. So let's have a look at verses 7 to 14 together. Genesis chapter 16, verse 7. It says, The angel of the Lord found her, this is Hagar, by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and you shall bear a son and you shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Beelahiroi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. Basic questions. Who turns up? The angel of the Lord turns up. I'll just highlight this because this is the first time in the story of Genesis, in the story of the Bible, that the angel of the Lord appears. And so there's all sorts of um, issues and discussions about who the angel of the Lord is because he reappears throughout the, the Bible narrative at key junctures. And there's uh, people who... There's, it's kind of confusing because there's times where he speaks as if he's a messenger for God And there's other times where he speaks as if he is God. Uh, And let me just say that the scholarly consensus or the the approach that I I like is recognising that uh, the angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Jesus. As one scholar I was listening to uh, said, this is like Jesus, um, he's so eager to express his grace in this situation that he can't wait until the incarnation. He keeps popping up in the Old Testament, to demonstrate God's grace to us uh, in, uh, throughout the narrative. And we find that he does that here. So he turns up 
And, uh, and the question then is, where does he turn up? He doesn't turn up and appear to Abram. He did that last chapter. You know, Abraham and he had a great conversation. Abraham was this stellar example of faith. He doesn't turn up in this situation to Sarai, you know, back in the, in the main tent and say, Sarai, you know, you've done the wrong thing, your faith. He turns up in the wilderness. It says in verse 7 that the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water. He's gone out searching for her. He's gone out searching for the, for the runaway pregnant slave girl out in the desert. Doesn't that tell you something about the nature of our God? He's the one who goes out and finds the people who are broken, the ones who've been the victims, the ones who are uh, disenfranchised. He has gone out of his way to go and find her as she's fleeing on her way back to Jerusalem. Uh, Egypt, sorry, wrong story. <laughs> back to Egypt. And what happens when he turns up, when he runs into her in the desert? The first thing he does is he calls her by name. Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from? And where are you going? You know why that's so significant? Again, one of the scholars uh, that I was reading on this said that this is the only example in all of ancient Near Eastern literature from across all the different cultures and across uh, hundreds of years where a divine being calls a woman by name. In all the different mythologies, in that culture, in that patriarchal-dominated culture, divine beings didn't address women by name. But here we have God turning up, calling a pregnant, runaway, destitute slave girl by name. He's found her. He's identified with her, uh, identified her. He's called her by name. And the other thing that makes it significant is that when you read this passage in Genesis 16, he's the only one who does call her by name. Sarai never calls her by name. She's always my servant, or you, know, you, can go, you can have my servant. For Abram, she's always your servant. She's been put in this place of you know, being a surrogate, probably unwillingly. And for, her, for Abram and Sarah, she's just a servant. She's a womb for hire. And if things don't work out, they can get rid of her and find a different one under the Hammurabi Code. But God comes and calls her by name. He places her not just by name, but also in her relationship network. You're a servant of Sarai. And then he does uh, some other things. He says, uh, so he restores her identity. He instructs her to return to Sarai. And I would say, uh, again, just like this is not a commentary on uh, surrogacy in general, this is not a, a justification for telling abused women to return to abusive situations. In fact, if you read this uh, story carefully uh, in the, over the next coming chapters as well, there is an implied promise here of God's provision and God's protection. So that uh, later on, after Isaac appears and Sarai says, Sarah at that point says to Abraham, get rid of um, Ishmael and Hagar, uh, and Abram, Abraham gives her provision, just a bit of food and a bit of water, and sends her off into the desert, and she's about to die. God turns up and continues to provide for her. There's an implication in this instruction. Not, you know, we're not supporting uh, the battered wife uh, returning to an abusive situation. There is a pledge to protect and provide for her as she bears her son, he announces the birth of her son. She knew that she was pregnant. She didn't know if she was having a boy or a girl. Having a boy was a big deal. He tells her that she's having a, a boy. She gives him her name and he prophesies about Ishmael's future and 
um, Hagar responds in faith. She responds to what God has said by faith. And she ends up praising him, uh, praising him and obeying him. And so as we get to the end of this chapter, of Genesis chapter 16, the question is, what lesson would God have wanted Abram and Sarai to learn in this episode? What lesson would God have us learn, you and I learn as we, uh, as we read this story? That's kind of a strange story in some ways. But I think the clue, as it is with so many Old Testament narratives, can be found in the names that God gives or the names that are recorded in the narrative. And the first name I want to focus on is uh, the name Ishmael, which if you've got your Bible, it's probably got a little footnote there that says that Ishmael means he hears or God hears. And if you read verse 11, it says, uh, you shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. So the first lesson I think that we want to take away, what Hagar learned and what Sarai and Abraham should have learned and what we need to learn is that when the pain of waiting for God to fulfill his promises just seems overwhelming and the temptation is to run away and to seek control, what we need to do instead is to turn to him and to pour out our heart to him. Does that make sense? We need to re-engage with God and we need to share with him what is going on in our lives. Uh, the reason I think that this is a legitimate um, application is because when we get to a few chapters later, in Genesis chapter 25, verse 21, Abraham's son Isaac is married to Rebekah. Rebekah is not getting pregnant. And what does Isaac do? He prays. And it says that, the, that God blessed him with a son. Isaac seems to have learnt the lesson that Abram and Sarai didn't get to yet. We can also look at the example of Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 1, where Hannah was married to Elkanah, and, uh, Elkanah, and she couldn't get pregnant, and, uh, and she, so Elkanah took a second wife, and, and they had children, and the second wife was abusive towards Hannah, and they would travel to Shiloh, to the, to the shrine, to worship the Lord on an annual basis, and when she was up there, uh, Hannah was pouring out her heart to God, and so much so that, that she wasn't able to speak. Her lips were moving, but nothing was coming out. She was just pouring out her heart to God, and Eli came up to her and said, are you drunk? Don't be drunk in the, in the, in the shrine. And she's like, no, I'm just pouring out my heart to God. And, and God uh, heard her and responded and got her pregnant. Now, let me just say, I don't think the promise is that every time you pray for something, that God answers your prayer that way. There's a lot more to prayer than what is pointed out just in Genesis 16. But this is a key point, that when our hearts are breaking, when we, when we have this desire that God has given us, that, that's um, an expression of who we are and how God wants to use us in his plan, it's okay to pour out your heart. In fact, you should be turning and pouring out your heart to God. Um, Another example of that is in the, it's just all through the Psalms. And, and I was talking, with this about, um, talking about this with Liz just a few weeks ago, and Liz said to me, uh, yeah, she'd been having a quiet time, and she read in Psalm 5, verse 3, and it says, In the morning, Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning I lay my requests before you, and I wait expectantly. Throughout the Psalms, they're, we're encouraged to turn towards God, 
to, to pour out what's going on in our hearts, to share with him the pain. He's a God who hears us in our affliction. The second name is this name that I hate pronouncing, trying to pronounce, and, you know, Beer Lahairoi. I'm just like, how do you really say that? I'm not sure. But Beer Lahairoi means, uh, it's translated, the well of him who lives and sees. And I think the key for this name is that in our pain, we can often feel like God is absent. We can feel like God is, you know, the person that we're pouring out our heart to. You know, if you can imagine being in a counselling situation and you're here and you're telling the counsellor all your woes and all the counsellor's doing, instead of looking right at you, he's looking past you to the clock on the wall waiting for the time. You know, is my hour up yet? Um, I'm sure you've never done that to a friend, have you? They're, tell me this again. Oh, I've really got to be somewhere, right? God's not like that. Um, God is... Uh, is at work. We can feel like God is absent. We can feel like God is disengaged. But Hagar learned and Sarai should have learned and we need to learn that in this process, God is uh, still working out his promises. He's working out his plan. And so let me speculate just for a moment why God may have taken so long. It says that Abram and Sarai had been journeying for 10 years. It was going to be another 13 years before the promised son turned up. Why would God have waited so long? And I think, in contrast to what Brad said last week, is that Abram and Sarai still at this point felt like they had a chance of accomplishing God's purposes on their own. The very fact that Hagar got pregnant would suggest that Abraham thought, I can get this done by myself. Right? I don't need God to turn up and do anything here. I'm quite capable of doing this myself. I mean, we might think it's ridiculous for an 85-year-old man to get a girl pregnant, but it happened. By the time they get to 99 years of age, it's obvious. Uh, in fact, Paul writes in Romans 4, as Brad quoted last week, that Abraham's body was as good as dead. Sarai's womb was dead. It resembled a tomb more than a womb. And so Isaac, the, the child of promise, could only come when God turned up. Sometimes we want to try and make things happen. We want to realize God's promises, his blessings on our own. We want to make things happen. I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm pretty capable. I'm pretty powerful. In a, in a relative world sense, I'm wealthy. I'm in a position of power and influence. I can make a lot of things happen. Why do I need God? And the temptation is for us to try and make things happen that only God can have happen. If, imagine if Sarai and Abram had turned to God and prayed as Isaac and Rebekah had. Maybe Isaac would have turned up earlier. But as it was... God had to wait until it was impossible. It was a miraculous birth, just like the miraculous birth of Jesus uh, a few centuries later. And for me, this past week has been an example of me having to trust God to do what only he can do. Our O-week at Sydney Uni, we had our stall. It was raining. Student numbers were way down. Is God actually going to do ministry here? Can he make anything happen? I've done the best I can. I've got to wait for God to turn up. Um, three years ago, when I took on leading the ministry, uh, we just had a very small group, and I was trusting God to bring, praying over the summer that God would bring students to us. Um, and uh, we did the same O-Week strategy, but the three students that stick in my brain from three weeks ago, one of them's in the room here, is Matt. It's like, he didn't come because we had a great O-Week strategy. He came because 
his mother is friends with someone who knew me, and it was like he was referred, and I was like, Matt, you were a student president for two years, you know, I didn't do anything to deserve you, right? Having you turn up. Minji was a student who transferred from Macquarie Uni to, to Sydney Uni right, just at the right time. Ruel was a guy who didn't, um, who a friend from school had invited him to go to church with him, but he wasn't really spiritually interested, but he'd gone to schoolies. And uh, at schoolies, he'd met some power to change people who'd sort of encouraged him to start following or explore following Jesus. And he turns up to our stall, and it's like given to us. It wasn't anything that I did. Even though I did the best I could, it wasn't anything I did that God brought those three students to us. And as we, as, and I know as, you, as a church here, you're looking to engage with people all around this community. And you need to work hard and do the right strategies. But at the end of the day, there's stuff that only God can do. And we need to be expressing our dependence on him. Because remember, the most important thing, or the more important something is, the harder it is to wait for it. And we can be tempted to doubt God's goodness, doubt God's promises, and we can be tempted to try and make things happen on our own. But at the end of the day, it's God who does it. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. This story of uh, Sarai and Abram and Hagar and how it speaks to us today. And Father, I pray that if there are people here this morning who perhaps don't feel that sense of urgency, that aren't really looking for you to come back yet, for, for them, their life is good enough. I pray that you would uh, open their eyes to see the brokenness in the world beyond their own situation and that you would move them to have a heart of compassion just like you have a heart of compassion, that they might go out and seek those who are the ones who are sitting by the well and you might use them to call them by name. Father, we pray for those who are here this morning who have been trying to reach out and, and engage with people around them but keep coming up against brick walls and Father, we, we're looking to see this promise fulfilled, this blessing realized, but it's not here yet. And Father, I pray that you would encourage them to keep turning to you, to pray, to share that, heart, that hurt that they're feeling in their own lives, and also to be praying for those who are around them. And Father, it's great to hear the stories of what's been happening with this Introducing Jesus course elsewhere, but we pray that for this church that it, those, those stories might be lived out in this context. Father, that this church might be used by you to spread the good news of what you have done throughout this community and that there might be people who give their lives to you and demonstrate your glory and grace in the way that their lives change. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.